0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the UW Film Club podcast, where each week we invite a member of the club onto the show to talk about a movie of their choice. Whether that be good, bad, topically relevant, or anything in between, it's all up for the table. I'm your host, Cynthia Lee, and joining me is Piper Coyner, Natalia Owen, and Stephanie Chuang as we continue our Miyazaki trilogy. How is everyone doing so far? i got nods
1: but this is a podcast we can't see <laughs> nods. i'm done with class i finished my last project yesterday
0: so Ooh, everything's good
1: great stephanie
0: i forgot to mention to you when i think it was on friday were you still here on friday yeah i went on my run and i came back and i saw your dog just like looking out your balcony and he was so cute yeah, was she does that your dog <laughs> <laughs> how about you guys piper natalia how are you guys doing
2: pretty good just finished the last two finals today so pretty much done
0: when i'm releasing this like the way i have it scheduled in my head now since now i figured out how to upload it to soundcloud myself rather than asking someone else to do it this is gonna be like released in like july maybe and so people are like what the Fuck, <laughs> are they talking about finals or literally in the middle of summer? But it is what it is. Today we're gonna be talking about Stephanie's favorite Miyazaki film, Ells Moving Castle, as a way to again continue our trilogy of <laughs> uh, Miyazaki films. So Stephanie, since you pseudo-picked this, I'm gonna say you picked this. Do you want to give a quick synopsis?
1: So Howl's Moving Castle is about this, uh, the main character's name is Sophie and she's a Milner living in like a a pseudo UK. I would probably say a pseudo Japanese UK and at least it's it's probably the UK in the book. I haven't read the book. She is cursed by a witch to look old. She, She, to look old and she runs into this wizard named Howl and his moving castle, and they sort of team up together, and there's also a big war going on in the background. And so they meet up, and then they start working together. Howl's got some issues. They're running away from a couple evil evil spirits and stuff like that. And so they team up, they fight evil, and they fall in love. And yeah, it's good.
0: Great synopsis. Much briefer than mine last week. Last week was crazy <laughs> um, in terms of my plot synopsis because I'm never short nor concise but before we actually dive deeper into this film Natalia you didn't join us last week but you were the one that kind of again inspired this trilogy because like Piper you've never seen a Ghibli film before last week's but unfortunately you couldn't make it to the Princess Mononoke recording and then this week, Howl's Moving Castle. So these are your first time seeing both of them, right? Or any Ghibli film.
2: Yeah, yeah, any Ghibli film.
0: What was your first impressions? That-
2: <laughs> so, I mean, right off the bat, I liked Howl's Moving Castle better than Prince Mononoke. But I think just in general, like watching a Ghibli film for the first time, I was really unprepared, I think is the best word. To use. Just because I thought... Especially in the beginning sequences, it seemed like, particularly in Howl's Moving Castle, it at first it just reminded me of the really early Disney films. So I was like, oh, okay, pretty sure I know how this story structure works. I kind of know what's going to happen. It's going to, you know, play out for the next two hours. (laughs) One thing I was impressed by is the really great music throughout the film, especially in this one. I was like, kind of just swaying like it was kind of ballroom and I just... I just love that but um I mean besides the music the story itself kind of took a bunch of weird directions that I really wasn't (laughs) prepared for and like interesting characters that I didn't even know what form they took like if they were human or ghost or like some just evil force but it still like worked really well and it didn't kind of halt the story's progress in any way so I don't know I really enjoyed them I was really really happily surprised
0: I feel like because we were talking about kind of last week about how, for me and Stephanie at least, we watched these as like children. And our perception of them was like, oh, cool creatures, awesome design, stuff like that. And I think as you get older, I feel like that might be more overwhelming. Because like as a child, you're just so like wanting to be stimulated by like anything in your screen that like, because I can totally see how like How's Moving Castle is just extremely there's a lot going on. Like if you thought there was a lot going on in Princess Mononoke, mm-hmm. there's like 10 times more things going on in Howl's Moving Castle. Like this spell, how does this, how do these factions work? What is this giant war? Is a talking fire? <laughs> um, That kind of thing where it's like, but I think what's interesting about these movies, it's like, it's, art or, or just animation in general is like logic doesn't really, you can't be like, grounded into logic in a way i think what makes animation so interesting is just kind of how it uses abstraction to invoke abstract emotions that we always feel but are like hard Mm -hmm. to pinpoint or like ground them in reality because they're so large and so overwhelming so yeah it's just interesting that you just brought up kind of how a little bit overwhelming it is because i mean that fucking castle is like animation like masterpiece it's crazy it's crazy Do, did they need to design it that way probably not <laughs> but unless it is that way in the book because I keep forgetting this is ad- adapted from a novel but I've never read it has anyone read it no I'm getting shaking of heads no <laughs>
1: I don't know yeah this is your favorite gym <laughs> yeah well apparently I was like I was doing some background check. <laughs> background research in prep for this podcast and apparently like so there's the turnip the scarecrow in the movie mm-hmm. right and apparently the reason for the war is because so he's a prince from like a neighboring kingdom mm-hmm. and so the reason for the war is because he's missing yeah yeah Hmm. and they don't like make that clear in the movie yeah I mean I think we can start off with that immediately I think there's a lot of things in house movie castle that
0: aren't necessarily clear there's a lot like as we already said it's kind of like it moves all over the place in terms of it's like it does not stop It's (laughs) it's it's really quick and it's it's shorter than princess mononoke which I found kind of fascinating because it's just like they're tackling like a They're not tackling a larger scope. I feel like Mononoke is like this big epic and it calls Mm -hmm. for that two hour and 20 minutes where like you don't feel like this is an epic the way that Princess Mononoke is. But they're, they're tackling like more motion and more detail. Like the city, like when you're introduced to the city, um itself at the beginning it's like crazy like how well it's designed with the different houses and then the the trains i love the trains i don't know why i love the trains
2: yeah the detail is insane yeah i think that's so much
0: that's the (laughs) one thing of these ghibli films it's like they're incredibly intricate in their designs um in a way that like a lot of animation is not these days. But yeah, to Piper or Natalia, since this is your first time watching Howl's Moving Castle, I guess you kind of already mentioned it was a little overwhelming, but like, am I just projecting what you guys are saying? Or how did that kind of function into your experience with this particular film?
3: Yeah, so I just want to echo what Natalia said earlier about it like never knowing what's going to happen like I feel Mm -hmm. like when I watch Disney and Pixar movies I I know the story structure like I'm I can kind of turn my brain off and I'm not as interested in them as I used to be you know when I was a kid like they just feel really like um uh uh-huh absolutely yeah but but like I just watched the Raya and the Last Dragon over the weekend and it was really fun but it was like nowhere near as inventive to me as this Mm -hmm. was like this felt totally new I'd never seen this before I was like interested in every single scene I had no clue what was going to happen and I loved it and it just like it made me feel just for like the briefest moment like you know a child again like there's something new to discover in the world and it was so lovely Mm -hmm. yeah I think I agree that this i liked this more than princess mononoke as well i wonder if that has to do with like it's set in the uk so it's like more familiar to me i don't know Mm -hmm. and it's like kind of pseudo 19th century so it's like i've seen like Victorian london so many times you know Mm -hmm. but um i
0: i loved it yeah
2: also because everything's like happening so fast and there's so much going on that kind of suspension of disbelief doesn't really take a lot because you don't really have time to think about the logic behind characters or different like plot twists you know she just became an old woman and then she just left (laughs) on her own with some bread and cheese but it's like yeah you kind of just get into kind of that dreamlike rhythm and yeah it's pretty like I don't want this to sound cheesy or corny but like it's pretty magical the way you kind of just like slip into the movie
1: I think if we're, like, when comparing to Mononoke, I think what appeals to, I think better is not the best objective word to use, but what appeals to me more about Howl's Moving Castle is that I think there's definitely more of, like, a happy ending in Howl's Moving Castle. Like, Princess Mononoke, the ending was, like, like it's very nuanced, it's well done, but, you know, the forest burned down, the dear god's dead, sad... And the ironworks are gone, but in this one it's like happy ending. And I I love the romance. Like I like like howl and Sophie together. I'm like, mm, I love it. I love that. And then I think the suspension of disbelief thing is a good point. Cause I definitely, um, the care the even the side characters in that movie, like they're not surprised by magic. They're just like, oh, the witch and wizard? Yeah, tell me more. Like they're not like, What? And like it's I do appreciate that a lot. Um, And then I love the, there's like a, um, I went back and found it and reread it before we did this, but I had read like a long time ago, I read like this like really intense Tumblr meta about about House Moving Castle, and it was about like Sophie and like when she turns old and when she turns young, because she like, she's cursed to look old. Mm -hmm. But she goes back and forth and it's like when Sophie is a very timid and submissive character at the beginning of the movie and she she views herself as unlovable but when she like grows into being assertive like when she and Howell disagree or when she's like asserting herself against other characters that's when she becomes young again Mm -hmm. like and so there's that sort of like self-love self-journey that Sophie takes and then there's also the the very very staunch anti-war theme mm-hmm. in this movie that I can also really appreciate because there's they're like oh um it's they're like battleships and then Sophie's like are they ours or the enemies and Howell's like doesn't matter they're mm-hmm. all sent to kill anyone and then so just all that together it's pretty it's a pretty soundtrack and there's love I'm just like I love it so much
0: i think I wanted to, like, transition to kind of the anti-war thing, but I couldn't figure out a good way to th- go about it, so I, like, froze, my, my brain froze for a bit. <laughs> but I think what I find so interesting about this film, and it leads to, like, my big confusion about how I feel about it. I'm leaning towards I really, really enjoyed it, but the anti-war theme, it, Um, so Miyazaki, like, after he won the Oscar for Spirited Away. He was like, I hate the war. I'm gonna make a movie about how war is dumb because it was like in response to the Iraq war war, and how he like was just like, everyone is so stupid for being (laughs) this, causing this war. And so he created this film, Howl's Moving Castle, which is like, as you've mentioned, very explicitly anti-war. That one line you mentioned where it's like, oh, um, whose battleships are those? Uh, Does it matter? Because, like, you see that the, oh, who's the main wizard? The, the lady. We're yeah, Suleiman, she, she kind of just, like, it's like a game of chess. It's like a game to her, not chess. Yeah. It's just a game to her that's, like, and Howl is kind of her little pawn she wants to play with. She just sits there. And then the way it ends, the whole movie ends, spoiler alert, actually this whole pod is about spoiler has spoilers, <laughs> so whatever. But the whole way it ends, she's just like, oh, happy ending. I guess I can end the war now. Almost like it's just an, the, all the damage she caused was kind of an afterthought. And it's almost feel, it feels very similar to how America acts with the iraq war where it's like they just kind of it i don't even know what the purpose of that war like if you ask anyone it's just like why did we go to iraq in the first place it's very convoluted and it when you do understand it's like well why did we even do it anyway um kind of thing but this is where like i have confusion about this movie though it's so anti-war right and it's so like it's so saying war is bad and Miyazaki has explicitly stated, like he wanted to create a movie about love and love and peace and stuff like that. And this, and so the earnest happy ending, I think he wanted to be like extremely earnest. But for some reason it felt very Serkian to me where it was like, it almost feels like that happy ending doesn't feel extremely happy to me because Miyazaki has exposed us to so much badness in our world that like them being in love and being able to live in peace almost seems infeasible in the similar way of, have you guys seen All That Heaven Allows or Imitation of Life, um, Douglas Sirk movies? Oh, basically like the whole thing with like Sirkian, and mellow, quote unquote Sirkian and mellow drama is that they're ironic they're like completely ironic in terms of their artificiality like they're these movies are so bombastic and so pretty and so gorgeous and they kind of exude this like perfection aesthetic but they're exploring a bunch of social issues within that almost feel like that perfect ending doesn't feel right because it feels like Cirque has exposed us to so many different issues within the world he's created, whether whether it be about class, about race, um, that that perfect ending just doesn't seem possible. And when I was watching Hell's Moving Castle, I was like, this feels so Cirquean because it's so explicit about how this war is just never ending. It is harmful to the world around them so harmful to the world around them and like no one people only like only people can do is run because they don't like no one really also has control of like how this war ends or how it begins as you said Stephanie like in the book it's more clear I guess it's more clear that the war is because of because of a missing prince but like in the movie it's extremely unclear why this war started so it's almost like why did this it's just there the war is there why did it start And so for me, just, it felt, that ending felt like a false happy ending to me. And I think I may be reading it way too much because I, because Miyazaki has explicitly said like, I wanted to create a movie about love and the hope in love, but I don't know. Am I like crazy or something?
1: I'll, I'll add in addition to the unclear um, reasons for the war. So howl is like a coward in the beginning of the movie he like doesn't want to take any responsibility and i totally didn't pick up on this the first time i watched it but he has like his castle has like a rotating door that like will Mm -hmm. spit him out in different places because it's a magic castle and so he has two he has two aliases jenkins and pendragon and apparently, he goes by those names in the Warring Kingdoms. Like, in one kingdom, he's known as Jenkins, and one, he's known as Pendragon. And so he's sort of like. He like messes peddling, with both sides. Yeah, he's peddling with both sides. And I, when I initially saw it, I was just like, oh, he just has multiple identities because he's cool. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, that's not what it is. He's in. And they like both kingdoms, like, call upon him to their respective kings to like call upon him to go to war and so there was like that extra piece of information that I feel like adds a little bit of context to it but but. I feel
0: like the way they present the war and the way Hal interacts with the war almost feels like the war is so overwhelming and it's so damaging that like even someone like Hal who's this almighty being and then like the way they animate him being so defeated and so destroyed by the war itself it just kind of accentuates the overwhelmingness of war and i do understand that like it's also probably like a plot device to show that love can conquer this kind of hate that's being driven by war but at the same time like it just feels miyazaki it feels like miyazaki has so explicitly been like war sucks war is so overwhelming war can't be really stopped it's just there that like I felt it felt very Serkian to me in a way and I don't want to sound super pretentious and throwing out that like word Serkian all that often but like just the way it felt I don't know I I feel like the ending is supposed to be earnestly happy but it just I'm not I wouldn't say it's hollow but like just how Miyazaki has built up this kind of anti-war sentiment and kind of established how bad war is i have a hard time and maybe because i'm just more pessimistic than a lot of people in this world but it almost felt like yay they're together but like how long <laughs> or can't even last in this like really cruel world
2: yeah well there's all there's also like not a lot of retribution at the end maybe because there's not really a clear villain especially Mm-hmm. Kind of within this war, I mean, you could argue that um, kind of the Someone, lady controlling, sure. yeah, I keep forgetting her name. That she's kind of the villain, but she, I don't know, she felt like more of an like an intangible figure, kind of like kind of godlike, like she's just kind of watching over. It, it's kind of a game to her, yes, but she's not really in it, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And there wasn't, you know, a clear good or bad side. At least I don't think I don't remember, but I don't know that might contribute to the ambiguity of the ending. Mm-hmm. And. It's seeming Hollandist. But... Yeah, it just,
3: it kind of, I sort of agree with you, Cynthia. I think it felt like two films to me. I think the, I wouldn't necessarily say that like the war, the anti war message was like underdeveloped
0: because it's very. I don't think so either.
3: Presented. Yeah, but I, I think it's like not given the time that it deserves um, within the narrative. Like it just felt like there's like, they're living in their happy little utopian bubble of the castle. And then there's like people being bombed all day in the uk and there's there's very little connection i know howells is is the connection between the two of them but um it was very easy to forget about the war Um, but i
0: think that also kind of adds on to this like weird class critique that's going on with this film as well like as you presented it's like that castle and then even the um solomon and that area they're all kind of pristine they're having fun on these jets um and then like the more working class area like the ports and the where Sophie lives is getting bombed I think is I think is just showing also like Miyazaki's showing just another class critique in terms of like war doesn't affect upper class people the way it affects the lower class people and as like see like with Solomon it's just like it's almost like a game to them you know um to just bomb places I would kind of disagree with you a little bit Piper on the underdevelopedness of the anti-war themes because I think it's the reason why I feel it's kind of hollow is because I almost feel like it's so there (laughs) that the Mm -hmm. love story feels kind of weird in its place yeah but I will say this though, because it feels like I'm, it almost feels like I'm saying this as like a critique. I actually like think this film is really good if I think of it in this kind of ironic ending way where it's like, it's so anti-war and then you have this clear cut, there's this like quote unquote happy ending, at least to me. I know again, Miyazaki has explicitly said that this is like an earnest happy ending but like for me, I feel like it's more smarter if I think about it that way. I don't know. Maybe it's just like my psychotic brain at work or it's because I watched it at like 10 p.m. at night. But um, I don't know. I feel like it would almost work better if it was working in this like extreme irony. I don't know. And I don't think it is, but
3: yeah. Yeah, I guess it, it almost feels like the love story and the war is hell are like irreconcilable within the plot
0: a little it yeah. feels like one
3: one of them one of them has to be false in a way mm-hmm. one of them has to be like ironic or or broken down in order you know they can't coexist but they seemingly do
0: but what I love about like Miyazaki and Cirque stuff like because I keep comparing it to Cirque is like there is that earnestness that like he wants you to believe in you know it's just like it's really hard for me personally Or like Stephanie, you said you love the love story, right? You like love how and Sophie getting together. I believe
1: that love conquers all. (laughs) I do. That's what I I come away with.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but yeah, I think what I like about Miyazaki and Cirque is like they give you the space to think that way, you know? It's not bad to want to wish that love conquers all, but there's so many social issues in the world and it's really difficult to kind of, at least for me when I'm watching this film it's like it's almost so difficult to kind of accept that and I think this film is working on a weird wire balancing act of like does love conquer all or like is the world so fucked up because of all this war and I still like trying like having a hard time like establishing where I want to land on this whether it's deeply ironic or it's deeply sentimental and actually believes that love is the way it is and I think Miyazaki built yeah I I keep saying this but Miyazaki has said that like that's his intention but I don't know I just find my brain the whole time when I was watching I was like this feels like all oh, that heaven allows in a <laughs> weird way and I was trying to like google online if I was going insane I was like "Sir Miyazaki has anyone done like this comparison and no one has done it so I was like okay I'm maybe losing it but I don't know I think if it is more leaning towards that ironic thing I would say this is a masterpiece but I don't know I I this is like this podcast is kind of me trying to figure out my feelings. I wrote in my like letterbox review circuit, question mark? Get back to me. <laughs> but yeah, um, I guess I've been rambling on for so long. So S- Stephanie or Natalia, do you guys have anything to say about the, the anti-war themes and how it fits into this? I mean, it's a children's movie too, so. Yeah,
2: I was just about to say, I think I... Watching it, I guess I didn't view it as a children's movie. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is really good. I'm into it. <laughs> but now that I'm kind of taking a step back, I realize, oh, this is probably meant for a younger audience. <laughs> um, I think maybe that's why it works so well for kind of children and adults, because it has kind of that initial layer of a love story, kind of amidst all this conflict. But then when you kind of have, you know maybe more understanding about um kind of real world problems um it's kind of an even more poignant film when you take the perspective that you were talking about cynthia where it's more of an ironic ending rather than a pure love story
0: how about you stephanie i know you're you're on the side of complete love conquers all like what contributes that more for you rather than kind of the anti-war thing that like is kind of clashing but kind of not
1: um i don't really equate the happy ending with an absence of war or a or i know i did i did say earlier love conquers all but i don't i don't know that i necessarily equated the happy ending of the film with like a complete um ending of the war that goes on yeah but i think definitely for uh-huh. me, like the celebration of the development of Sophie and Howell's character and how they overcome things with all this stuff, this bad stuff happening around them to be happy together, I think that meant that means a lot to me. Because uh-huh. like that is also sort of like like, you know, Howell and Sophie, they're they're two people. They didn't start the war and they probably uh-huh. aren't able to end it. Just the two of them alone. Oh,
0: yeah, definitely. If anything the, yeah. that this movie shows, <laughs> it shows that that is not possible. Yeah.
1: But like <laughs> them finding love and happiness despite all that and like growing into car- like Sophie, like loving herself and then how um, not being a coward anymore and them finding them both standing up to Suleiman and stuff like that. Like, I think that just means a lot to me in that scale and so I don't necessarily I don't think I see the two elements of the story quite as opposed as they might seem I just like I'm I guess I'm an optimist I just I liked it a lot I mean I think Miyazaki would agree with you Stephanie
0: more than he would agree with me in terms of the ending or just I yeah I wouldn't really say the war and like the love story are like uh, complete opposite ends But it's just, there is something I feel like to be said about kind of how much destruction is shown in this movie that it's so hard not to kind of be just such a Debbie downer (laughs) about the world. I was pretty, I didn't remember this the first time I watched it, but I was pretty shocked by how much animation of just bombed villages there were in this movie. And I was like, Jesus Christ rice like they're really emphasizing kind of the violence and destruction of war and how harmful that is to our world and it but it almost seems it's see i mean it's so pointless but how, how does one stop this it almost feels kind of impossible to stop these upper class people trying to play their games and at the same time also just being ignorant to the world around them so i think for me personally when i was watching this film i think that's just stuck out to me like a million times more and maybe i have to rewatch it without like my childhood lens because i remember as a child my favorite thing was like the fire and the dog and and the cool magic and i I, to- I mean i totally bought the sophie and howell love story don't get me wrong but like seeing it now i just i was just shocked by like how much violence this film shows and not in a good way not not like showing violence in not a good way it was beautiful but like you know what i mean (laughs) i don't know about you stephanie like when you watched it as a kid were you
1: i didn't see this one as a kid Um, oh really i definitely feel like i mean i don't like we're talking about violence but i i feel like i'm more shocked by prince the violence in princess mononoke i don't know the bombing the like the village bombing stuff i think is very powerful Mm -hmm. and those images
0: were crazy Yeah. They were just so visceral in my opinion.
1: Yeah I think I'm I think they are but I I don't know that I focused on them that much because there's a lot like I don't know I guess there's like one point in the movie where they they bomb a street and then the the witch the witch is like the witch of the waste her like blobs are coming after Sophie and Sophie's like if you had any heart at all you would put the fires out instead of trying to capture me and stuff like yeah that. So, yeah even though that's there i i don't know i guess i appreciate the the themes i guess or how it forces characters to take responsibility and c- confront what is going on like without the war it's the war is like a indirect facilitator of Howl and sophie's development almost because if it wasn't there like Howl wouldn't you know, that kind of thing forces them to sort of it forces their arcs almost. And yeah, I don't a good I guess thing, I didn't
0: know. I don't like, know. Like let's I, bomb a bunch of streets so these two can You know, I'm sure Miz was shells. very angry <laughs> when he was making this film. He was extremely angry about
1: the war. Yeah. Maybe that's just what translated. I was I accepted it. I was like, yeah. But I think like there's
0: there's an inherent purity to Sophie's character that's there the whole time that doesn't necessarily grow. It's just that everyone else around her kind of just believes that they're kind of stuck. In whatever state they are and there's this kind of purity within her that kind of drives the film forward that's almost like miyazaki saying like you know there are people like this in the world that can elevate us beyond the tragedies of war it's not necessarily that i mean they definitely grow because of the war which is like a weird thing to say but i feel like there's always this inherent assuredness or not assuredness but this inherent goodness in sophie that's blatant in, from the beginning of the film and I feel like I think that's more than anything what is trying to say it's not necessarily like they're coming out of their shells but that there are people around there that do exist that can that have the empathy that the people who are starting the war don't have and hopefully they of kind of rise up and take control and stop kind of these giant wars yes no I don't know would you say that like, yeah, like-
2: <laughs> by the fact that she didn't like her purity or well yeah purity I don't want to say innocence so I'll say purity (laughs) um wasn't like warped by the war like she kind of stood her ground and Mm -hmm. remained pure throughout it that's another testament to like the
0: human spirit
2: (laughs) right right like the humanity yeah that's a good way to put it
0: Yeah, because like, she, I remember when they first introduced her, she's kind of doing her hat job, you know, she's doing it because it's her father's like, that's like a very noble good thing already. She doesn't want to like, go out with the other girls and try to like, find how when he's coming, because she's not like, attracted to him based on physicality, the way the girls are. And there's kind of this introduction of just like, she comes at things with a pure heart. And that kind of stays throughout because i think howl's definitely that one guy person who's definitely more superficial i i would say and she almost coaxed things out of him rather than the war it's like them meeting each other helps them themselves develop and then there's the war behind them going on and also to kind of go on with Hal and um, Sophie's like characters, I think there's also this kind of interesting notion of beauty and age that's going on um, Mm. and physicality and physical appearance, not physicality, physical appearance going on. Um, There's that, like, Hal is so obsessed. Look, he looks so much better with black hair. He does. (laughs) What's up with, like,
1: huh?
3: Oh, oh, no. I, I was just said absolutely...
1: I, he looks I was, better with dark hair. Mm-hmm. I don't know and, what Hal's freaking out about. Yeah,
0: and he's like... There's that whole giant thing of him freaking out about his hair changing and his physical him losing his physical appearance the blonde edgy look that he has in the beginning of the film and I mean Sophie Sophie saying her never being beautiful I didn't buy but whatever on that it's almost like the (laughs) internal self-love that she doesn't possess for herself that's kind of what I got away from her constantly saying she wasn't beautiful but I think there's something interesting going on of as you said, Stephanie, like the character development almost is, feels like them self-loving each other rather than them coming out of their shells in a way. It's like they always possessed beauty within themselves and it was just more of them accepting it rather than relying on super the superficiality of the world around them. How kind of the upper class people are always in these poofy dresses and stuff and kind of, yeah, the superficiality within
1: industrialization, kind of. <laughs> I'll I'll read the I'll read the meta I found on Tumblr because <laughs> this sums up what I think too. It's okay. I've been thinking about Howl's Moving Castle and how Sophie's curse is a physical symbol of her belief of be- of being romantically unlovable, especially after growing up with beautiful sought after women in her family. Howell tries to undo this curse the moment she steps into his castle, but he can't because Sophie doesn't want it to be broken. She gets. Close to breaking in the film when they're in the field, Sophie gets close to breaking the curse when they're when when they're in the field and she's happy. But when Howl calls her Howl calls her beautiful, it reminds her of like how she sees herself, okay. and so she turns old again to reinforce her sense of self worth. And so again, we see Sophie turn young like in her sleep and when she's asserting herself. But at the end. She sacrifices her long hair, which is prob which is what old Sophie would probably say is her only beautiful aspect, but keeps like the gray. and so it's sort of like a symbolism of how she's sort of she's let go of that superficiality. and she remains young because her lovability is like not based on her appearance and everything. Mm-hmm. I love that I like I like that that theme a lot. And the other thing was like, in so she says a lot of like there are a lot of moments in the film where sophie's like oh it's so nice to be old then Mm -hmm. i don't have to worry about this and she like (laughs) she does i mean she complains about her back a lot which is i guess funny relatable i complain about my back a lot but she just like she as an old woman she's like she's allowed to be she's allowed to like speak her mind more and she's Mm -hmm. she's like you know she bosses howl around she bosses calcifer around mm mm-hmm. and so it's she's I not like
0: dictated yeah. by her physical beauty when she's older there's that one juxtaposition yeah. of um when she's trying to go home and I mean where she meets Hal for the first time like before she meets Hal she's like getting sexually harassed essentially by two mm-hmm. soldiers mm-hmm. and then there's that sequence where she's old and she's trying to go into the um I think she's just like crossing a bridge or something and one of the soldiers is just like oh ma'am do you need help getting down the the bridge it's not necessarily like do you want to go home with me so that kind of juxtaposition of how people treat her and like how beauty standards and physical appearance are so emphasized um in your um your youth and it almost destroys people's self-worth because of it and I I think yeah what you said Stephanie is kind of spot on in terms of her growth as a person uh Piper and Natalia what do you guys think about that kind of through line because I think that through line is really I mean we're all women here so like mm-hmm. we all said that we've liked this more than Princess Mononoke so like at least for that through line what what was your reaction
2: I think it's like the whole through line of beauty standards definitely evident through the other character who's I forgot oh it which the waist, right mm-hmm
0: Yeah, she's so cute without the (laughs) magic.
2: I know, I know. So like with the magic, she, you know, is kind of beautiful. I mean, she's still kind of like really in your face and clearly evil. (laughs) Um, And that kind of like, in that way, her inner character just kind of dominates her kind of outside. So it really doesn't matter. Um, But then she becomes so cute and kind of like almost a good person. When she's like yeah in her true state, I think it's yeah, it just kind of emphasizes that through line, and is another kind of different and surprising character development that I wasn't expecting in the movie
1: mm-hmm. Sophie is so like in a, in a continuation of her purity, like how her character's so pure, I guess she like forgives the witch mm-hmm. of the waste, like mm-hmm. she berates Madame. Suleiman for making her climb the stairs and I was like oh if I were you I wouldn't feel sorry for her at all but she like takes in the she takes in Madame Suleiman's dog and she's nice to the the witch of the Waste after she's turned old and like
0: she even like cheers her on when she's going up the stairs even though the witch of the Waste was like fuck you
3: um that that was one of the like few things that I kept thinking about like one of the few like illogical fallacies that i couldn't help but like ponder mm-hmm. it was like why would she trust her and then the other thing being like where are her parents you know like what like you know that her mom and her sister like exist and that they must miss her when she like sneaks out of bed in the morning but like natalia you were saying like she just has bread and cheese and i was like what has happened to the rest of her family
0: <laughs> on the notion of the witch of the ways like That she's, which of the Waste is kind of the person that almost kills. (laughs) Blanking. Sophie at the end for wanting, being so greedy and wanting the heart of um, Howl. And then the notion of the mom is actually interesting because she does come back. She does put that tracking magic thing, basically exposing Sophie's location when they were trying to hide and run away from Solomon. And then she was just like, or like when she leaves, she kind of has this like, she's sad about it kind of, but she was just like, oh, just get me back to my rich husband. And it's just another critique of the upper class and kind of the greediness and the self. Yeah, just like the greediness and selfishness of that and the upper class of just like, I will do anything to make myself be better and make myself look good in the way that society and modernity want me to be. Um, even if that's destroying the people beneath me although another logical fallacy is literally the mom being like I guess you're old
1: now (laughs) (laughs) yeah hey witches and wizards are normal they all like talk about them they're all just like oh it's the witch and wizard be careful (laughs) completely normal nothing's up here so I guess she was like oh I guess you were cursed could happen I to anyone.
3: <laughs> um, can we talk about the flowers? That was just the way the flowers were animated was just like the best part for me. Mm-hmm. Like in, in so many different scenes, it was just so gorgeous. And also weirdly like wallpaper, like interior design was just, like spot on. <laughs> the
1: the film. cleaning scene, I was like huh? when she was doing the that cleaning and then when the castle expands, I was like, ooh, yeah asmr yeah i think there's just so much i think
0: being in kind of that industrial environment there's so much room for creativity within it and it really really stands out in this movie and i think um i mean studio ghibli films are always inventive and crazy but i think there's just something so fun about kind of the world that's being built even though then it gets like severely bombed um but (laughs) yeah 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 i love the flowers like they're the 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 peaceful place where howl um was growing up is just it's gorgeous Mm -hmm. i loved calcifer and his like
3: movements
2: particularly cool
1: in the english dub he's voiced he's voiced by billy crystal oh um, my god (laughs) which is i think a good fit i haven't heard Mm -hmm. it the i know christian bale voices howl which (laughs) i i believe is Good, and then I know Billy Crystal voices Calypso, and then a very young Josh Hutcherson voices Markle, and, so and then I was, um, sorry, no, keep going. No, I watched the English
3: dub. It was insane. Okay. I knew Gene Simmons was
1: was um, old
3: Sophie. <laughs> uh-huh and then lauren bacall was the witch of the waste it
1: blew my oh, mind <laughs> what the fuck She must have been like a million years old Holy maybe shit. i should listen to this dubbed yeah well i'd I could be
3: curious on hbo to watch it in japanese so um, the
0: things lauren bacall does in 2004 uh-huh howl's moving castle and i think dogville is that year <laughs> jesus <Jeez. laughs> I'm looking that up if to see if I'm correct, that she did indeed do Dogville that year. <laughs> oh, close, 2003, she does Dogville. And then in 2004, this house moving castle. Jesus, <laughs> this lady does not stop. Wait, that's crazy. How does she sound? I didn't, I didn't watch the English dub version.
3: Um, kind of like an old smoker lady. <laughs> I, I had no idea that it was her. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's crazy okay yeah maybe I do have to watch the English dub yeah. just for think, Lauren Bacall
3: <laughs> I think Billy Crystal was definitely the highlight though like oh, Calcifer really? was
0: just so great yeah yeah because Calcifer is like really like I mean I don't know these the Japanese voice actors but he's even fun like Japanese dubbed as well so it mm-hmm. must be like because Bri- Billy Crystal is just out there <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um in his personality but yeah, I, I loved Calcifer. I loved, at the beginning, he's literally like, I'm being exploited. And I was like, what?
3: <laughs> I love when he eats. Um, like when Howell feeds him a bunch of eggs and bacon. Um, mm. So cute.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess it just shows just how like creative and fun Ghibli is, is able to make things, but make it totally believable. And like we're like, one is having a good time while watching it, but also still being very, very poignant in what it wants to say um I was gonna ask Natalia what was your favorite part of it visually um that Um, was a really smooth but we can just go and say I asked that
2: (laughs) (laughs) like visually I'd have to say probably I mean the same the flowers and the fields and the lake like just the shots of the water it just seemed so grand that you were it almost like made it three-dimensional I mean the detail and it was great but I don't know. When I think of my favorite part, I just think of the dog. I love the dog. (laughs) He had his own personality and Mm -hmm. just great. His feet move so fast.
0: Wait, he can't get upstairs. I know. (laughs) Or get downstairs. I I, I found that dog character like weird because he's supposed to be like a worker of Solomon and then just Mm -hmm. kind of detaches from that. That situation is it just to emphasize kind of sophie's specialness or purity i hate that word god yeah i think so okay
3: i mean like at the end doesn't he talk to solomon through this like little <laughs> the orb. and she like, doesn't <laughs> care that he switched sides like he's just a dog you know
0: <laughs> it's pretty cute i mean the nonchalantness of that of solomon at the end of just being like okay I guess the war I can end the war now is kind of almost like what the fuck (laughs) doesn't she have like a big arboretum
3: conservatory yeah where she just sits
0: there the whole time Beautiful. yeah she's (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about in terms of this movie anything I'm missing completely thank you for letting me ramble on for like 20 minutes about if this thing is ironic or not um I very much appreciate it
3: <laughs> I-, I was confused about like those two scenes in which like Howl's using his powers and then there's like they, they look like paper cutout figures and they're like dancing in a circle and there's like mm. rainbow shooting stars and sparks I just was confused particularly about the people s- dancing in a circle Do you guys have any
0: I think it was, at least they both show up when Solomon is chasing um, Hal, right? Like explicitly chasing Hal. I just kind of assumed it was the magic of Solomon trying to trap Hal and capture him to fight for her side.
1: Okay. I don't know if yeah. anyone
3: else. No, <laughs> no that <laughs> makes sense. Because it, it happens when um, she puts like the wish of the waste in that one chair and then like mm-hmm. takes away all her beauty. So I but, you
1: thought know. you were talking about, yeah.
3: Yeah, but then it happens at the end, too. Like, there's the ring of figures. So, yeah, that makes sense if it's Solomon's magic. I guess there's just...
0: (laughs) I find her... I mean, her character is fascinating and just, like, how nonchalant... I've said that word, like, a million times, but, like, how much she just doesn't care. It's like she almost... She only cares about, like, wanting Howell back rather than fighting a giant war between two countries. It's almost like the war is, like... An excuse for her just to mess with how, rather than like (laughs) (laughs) um deal with politics or anything and I think it's just like kind of an emphasis of like almost the uselessness of war in a way of like these people just don't they just do it you know and there's no reason right or reason right there's no reason for them to do it um war for oil Oh, yeah. There's no oil <laughs> through line in this, though. <laughs> Unless I'm missing something completely. <laughs> we can just like, combine Mononoke and Howl's Movie Castle. Then you can probably have an oil <laughs> through line.
3: Resource extraction. Yeah,
0: resource extraction. That's yeah. a super poignant. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, does anyone have anything else they want to say about the movie?
1: Stephanie Natal, yeah, or and Good, it, movies that increase your unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. for them. <gasps> this and <laughs> 2005 Pride and Prejudice.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's like, Maybe. where is my field of flowers?
0: <laughs> Where's my man who is going to make magically create? a little hut for me in the in this giant peaceful area away from war and a magic house that lets me transport to anywhere i
1: want okay oh we might then you probably will want to cut this out but a while back there was this thing on twitter it was trending this this hashtag was trending and it was how i found the g spot it was the hashtag but since it was a hashtag and it was all Smushed together it looked like howl found the (laughs) g-spot and so people on tumblr were like taking pictures of the hashtag and then someone responded to it with the picture of like jessica walters from arrested development and it was just like good for sophie i'm keeping that in fucking oh it was so funny i was like good for sophie yeah (laughs) That's also great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and with
0: that, <laughs> I feel like that is a, a, a good t- indicator that we should probably stop talking because we've talked for a really long time. Um, but yeah, Howl's Moving Castle. Um, I think you guys have convinced me that I liked this a lot. Um, I'm just gonna go through with my ironic lens and be that weirdo who's galaxy braining movies because that is who I am in general. If you want more podcasts um, like this um, about Miyazaki or other filmmakers in general, um, you can check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Um, We will be releasing new episodes every week in the summer so check that out next week we'll be talking about my favorite ghibli film Spirited it away miyazaki's magnum opus in my opinion someone can fight me on that although i don't think most people will if you want more information <laughs> right. about future meetings podcasts uh, reviews you can get information at film club uw on our instagram or twitter or uw film club on our facebook And yeah, as we mentioned, we're going to be talking about Spirited Away next week. But until then, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode and talk to you guys next week.
1: Bye.